Well, this won't be my usual talk at New Spring. If you've been around for a while and you've heard me speak a few times, you know that usually if I'm breaking down a a Bible story like the one that we're going to look at, I tend to be that person who looks for some some keys, some takeaways that I can take and and put in my life. And I I like to have more than one. I usually like, you know, so I'll I'll say, here's three things that you need to remember about this, or here's four things that are, you know, that will help you avoid this pitfall in life, or two things that you need to do in order to be successful in this area. Um, But no matter how hard I tried to sort of find that groove in this story, it just didn't happen for me. I, I, when I was studying it, I started, I started, I started thinking to myself, this is one of those moral of the story kind of stories. Like when I was a really little kid, my dad used to read this storybook to me when I was, uh, at, at nighttime when I was going to sleep. And it had these really long stories. And at the end of the story, it would say, and the moral of the story is, and then there would be this sort of overarching truth that you were supposed to kind of attach to that narrative. Okay, this is what this story is about. And it's this one thing that I really need to understand in life. And that's the kind of story that we're going to be talking about today. So we have sort of this kind of long narrative in the, in the Bible about what happened to King Jehoshaphat. But there's one thing I really think that God wants us to take away from this. So if you'll hang tight with me through this message, we're going to get there, but it's going to take us a while to kind of work through uh, the narrative. And this, by the way, is a story about hedging, which is a term that's used in a lot of different arenas, but it's certainly used in the gambling world. And, and I have to be honest with you, when I first found out I was going to be part of this series and I saw the set design and, and all of that, it sort of broke out into a little bit of a cold sweat because, you know, I, 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 I don't have a lot of background in gambling. You know, I, I don't have a lot of the terminology down. I, I don't go to the casinos, although if I did, that would be one viral picture for New Spring, right? Look, I just caught Pastor Hoover at the slots machines, you know? Um, that would get some play on social media, I feel like. Um, but, and, and, and I do know the Kenny Rogers song, you know, you gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them. No when to walk away, no when to run. Actually, that's the, all the song that I know. I don't know any of the rest of it. Um, I do sing it in my head every time I help Wendy with laundry. But, um. <laughs> but I, I understand hedging. Even though I'm not a, a gambler and even though I don't have experience in gambling, I understand hedging because it's something that, that we all do um, and we all have experience with. If you've rented a car... You understand what hedging is about, right? Because you, you go to the, to the rental desk and, and they show you the contract. You've got a car rented for a day. It's $35. And then they say, would you like the $165 insurance for the day on the car that you've rented just in case you happen to, you know, damage it terribly in some way? And they give you all of the terrible outcomes that will happen if you don't sign up for the insurance. And so what do we do? We hedge that bet, right? We say, all right, well, I'm betting nothing's going to happen to this car, but just in case, I'll pay for the insurance, right? And that's what a hedge is. A hedge is something that we do just in case. That's the motto of hedging, right? So this is the way hedging was explained to me in the gambling world. I guess if you were going to gamble on a sports game, which I wouldn't recommend, I don't think gambling is all that helpful for anybody, but if you were going to gamble on a sports game, and there is the team that everybody says is going to win, this team is everybody's favorite. If you gamble on them to win, chances are you're not going to make a lot of money on it if you win. You're going to make a little money, but you're not going to lose anything. And if they're playing this underdog that nobody expects to win, then the odds on that team are going to be a lot better. If you bet on the underdog and they just happen to somehow pull it out, you know that could pay 10 to 1, something like that. So what you do is you bet on the team that you think is going to win, and you know you're not going to make a whole lot, but if they win, you're not going to lose anything. But just in case the other team were to win, 
because you don't want to lose all your money, what you do is you put a little bet on the side of the team that you don't think is going to win, right? That's a hedge because it'll pay off so much that even if you were wrong, you won't really lose anything, right? So in this sense, we, we would say that, that hedging is betting against your beliefs to avoid losing it all. And I, I, I sold hedges as a teenager. One of my first real jobs uh, back in the late 90s, I was working at a large computer box store and, uh, and selling computers. At the time, the tech bubble had burst and there, was, and there was no profit in computers at the time. I mean, nobody was making any money on the hardware. And so one of the things that sort of grew out of that period was the extended service contracts. Anybody in here hate extended service contracts as much as I do? Okay, just wondered if there were any brothers and sisters out there in the room. But at the time, that was my livelihood because since there was no profit in computers, guess where all the profit was? Well, it was in the extended service contracts. And I worked at a store that had the most expensive ones anywhere. Some of these extended service contracts were 30 or 40% of the cost of the computer, right? And whether or not you kept your job in a large part hinged on whether or not you could sell both computers and the service contracts. So I, I sort of felt like my job was to be a little bit two-faced, right? I'm, I'm trying to sell this computer to this customer. I'm saying this is the greatest computer that has ever been on the market. I mean, it's brand new, it's exciting, you can't believe all the things, the graphics card is amazing, you know, and it's got 64 meg of, of RAM and it has a six gigabyte hard drive. Now, I want you to think about six gigabytes of hard space, that's six zero 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 megabytes. No one will ever fill that much hard drive space in a lifetime. This was the day and age where we were still telling people how many Microsoft Word files would fit on a six gigabyte hard drive and people's eyes were just, whoa. That's amazing, you know. So finally, the customer says, yeah, I'll buy it. I'll take it. It sounds like a great deal. And now, all of a sudden, I've got to sort of change roles, right? So I was the good cop up until now. Now I've got to be the bad cop, right? And I, and I look at them, and I say, now I have a question for you. What are you going to do when this computer is riddled with viruses, crashing every 15 minutes, and all you do all day long is stare at the blue screen of death, you know? That's why you need our protection policy, Right? See, what was interesting about what my boss wanted me to do is he wanted me to sell the customer. He wanted me to make money on the customer's faith, and he wanted me to make money on the customer's doubt. I was supposed to sell them the computer and make money on the fact that they believed the computer was going to be great. They believed the computer would work for them and do everything that they wanted to. But once we made money on the customer's faith, then I was supposed to turn around and make money on the customer's doubt that maybe that was wrong. Maybe it wouldn't work the way that they thought it would. Maybe something bad would happen. So a hedge, when we place that little bet on the underdog, we're saying, listen, I don't believe this is going to happen, but I'm investing a little bit in the possibility that it might in case my beliefs are wrong. Why? So that I can avoid losing it all. I don't want to end up being wrong and losing it all. So here's a question. All of us do this a little bit. All of us hedge in some areas of our life, we're, we're legally required to hedge. If you're driving a vehicle, you're legally required to hedge with something called automotive insurance, right? You want to make sure that, that you, you believe when you leave here, you're going to drive safely and nothing's going to happen to your car, right? But at the same time, just in case the underdog wins and something bad happens to your car, you want to be, you want to be covered, right? So we all hedge. Why do we do it? And he, there's a very, very simple reason. Here's why we hedge, because we want it both ways, right? 
the person I'm selling a computer to, they want it to be okay if the computer works, they want it to be okay if the computer doesn't work. We want it to be okay if, 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 a, if no hailstorm comes and shatters the windshield glass on my car, we want it to be okay if a hailstorm comes and damages my car. We want it to be okay both ways. We want to have it both ways. We want to win money if our team wins, we want to win money if our team loses. And there are some cases in which we can successfully do this. And maybe some cases in the financial world and in, in the business world where hedging is not just a can-do kind of thing, it's a should-do kind of thing. If you can try to be safe with your investments and all that, that's wonderful. But there are some areas in life where this is problematic, and that's what we're going to talk about, because we want to ask the question, what happens when we try to hedge our faith in God? What happens when we start to invest a little bit of ourself in something we, we really don't believe in, just in case what we believe in doesn't happen to be true? What happens when we divide our loyalty a little bit? And yeah, we're loyal to God, and we're loyal to, we're, we're loyal to what God teaches, and, and we, we're trying to follow God, but then there's a little bit of us, this little nagging doubt, what if what I believe isn't true? And, and, and we, we take a little bit of our loyalty, and we sort of cross the line with it. What happens when we do that? Well, that's what our story is all about, today, and we're going to talk about a guy named Jehoshaphat. The Bible says that Jehoshaphat was a good king following the example of his father Asa. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. Now, that would be an easy verse to just read right past and not think much about, but it is important that you recognize that this verse alone means that Jehoshaphat was an unusual person. We talked about this before, that the kingdom of Israel was all one kingdom to start with. And there were 12 tribes in the kingdom of Israel. And you have King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And then King Rehoboam was an idiot. He was a moron. And his stupid policies caused the kingdom to split. And you've got 10 of the tribes leaving, literally, and saying, we're going to start our own nation. Stop us. if you, you try, Just try and stop us. We're going to go and be our own nation. And they created what we call the northern kingdom, which is usually called Israel or Samaria. And then you have Rehoboam and his buddies and one, you know, his tribe and one other tribe. So two little tribes in the southern part of the kingdom. And we call them the southern kingdom. And that's usually called Judah. So what you should know, once the kingdoms split, there's a king in both places, right? So if you're reading the Old Testament, you're like, this is so confusing. It's like it's talking about two kings at the same time. That's why. There's a king in the northern kingdom and a king in the, in the southern kingdom. But here's what you need to know. In the northern kingdom, every single king was bad. When God gives a report card to these kings, he says about every single one of them that all of them went against God and went against God's instructions. In the southern kingdom, it was a mixed bag. There were some good kings and some bad kings. But if we put all those kings together into one grab bag, you've got 39 kings, then what you should know is, depending on where you set the bar for how good is good, only six or eight of the kings total were good. So only six or eight out of 39, that tells you that Jehoshaphat was an outlier. He was a, an unusually strong, a person of unusually strong character. Because this was a time when kings, when, when kings came to the, to the throne at this period of time, they had absolute authority. And so they would go off the rails and do crazy stuff, and they weren't typically following God. But Jehoshaphat, was, he was a man of character, and he was doing what he believed God wanted him to do. His father had taught him that, and he was going on in that way. So this is a good king. He's one of the few. But what about the northern kingdom? So when, when Jehoshaphat is king in the southern kingdom, what's going on in the northern? Well, in the northern kingdom, we've got this guy named Ahab. And Ahab was not just a bad king, because all the kings in the northern kingdom were bad kings. He was the worst. 
The absolute worst. And God told us that. The Bible says, Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. And just in case we weren't getting the message, check this out. The Bible says, no one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did. Well, if I'm reading that, I'm thinking, what did this guy do? I mean, he ticked God off. What, what did he do to, to, to get so much on, on God's bad side? Well, there were several things. And, and if you read through uh, the, the salient passages in the Old Testament, you can really see Ahab was just, he was a bad dude. But one thing particularly was problematic. He married this woman named Jezebel. Well, come on, that tells you something right off the bat, right? Because, you know, I, I've been called to the hospital before, you know, when, when New Spring family welcomes a new little baby into the world. And, and, and all up until this moment, I've never been brought over to the hospital for a family to say, we just want to introduce you, introduce you to our new little bundle of joy. This is Jezebel, you know. Nobody does that. As a matter of fact, you look it up in the dictionary. Jezebel's still a pejorative. It's still a, it's something that if somebody's trying to call you a bad name, they might call you a Jezebel. It's not, a, not something that, that anybody wants the label on them. And here's the reason why. Jezebel was just a, she was a wicked, wicked lady. But specifically, Jezebel came from a country where they worshiped a different God. They didn't worship the true God over there. They worshiped a God named Baal. And in other countries at the time, what would happen is people would create these little wood gods or, or pieces of, of, of metal or stone, and, and then they would create, so those would be in their home, these little gods they would pray to in their home. And then they would create these big monuments that people would come to and worship these other gods. And there would be a God of whatever it was they wanted. There was a God of the sun and a God of prosperity and a God of, of you know, um, the agricultural stuff, the fields, your crops, you want them to grow. There'd be a, a God for anything that you might need help with, a God of illness that you would pray to, that sort of thing. So here's what I want you to think about. Ahab marries Jezebel, brings Jezebel in. She brings this God that they worship, the God Baal. Baal was the God of prosperity and sex. So you've got a country where there's still quite a few people who worship the true God, and now you've got this other God of prosperity and sex that comes with its own prophets and its own temple and its own worship style, and let me tell you, it was twisted. I mean, and in Baal worship, they had hired temple prostitutes as part of the worship. Think about this. Baal, worshiping Baal was all about doing whatever you wanted to do sexually and whatever you had to do to get ahead financially and saying that doing those things was somehow worship. Well, I could make some parallels with where we're at right now in our country, but I won't, I won't take that time, but they're pretty obvious. And so when Jezebel comes into Israel, Ahab loves this new religion. He's really hooked on this. This makes a lot of sense to him. It's everything he ever wanted. And now he can say that it is somehow worshiping God at the same time, but he's got this pesky little problem. There's still a lot of people in Israel who follow the true God, and he's got this prophet named Elijah who's always talking at him and always causing issues for him. At least that's what he thinks. And so what he decides to do is he says, you know what, I'm going to create my own religion. I'm going to take this worship of Baal, and I'm going to take the worship of the true God, and I'm going to put them together in the same bag, and we're just going to create a religion that incorporates all of that. It was the religion of Ahab. He had his own seminary, right, the seminary of Ahab, and then he put some churches in. Here's, you know, on First Street was the first church of Ahab, and you go over a few streets over, there's the third church of Ahab, and he's like, I've settled this problem now. I've basically convinced everybody we can take worshiping sex and prosperity and worshiping God, and we can, they're not incompatible. I've told them everything is cool. We can put this all together and everybody's fine with it. And God was seething because it was a lie and it was taking people away from him. 
So this is, what, this is what's happening in the, over in, the, over in the, the northern kingdom where Ahab is. There's this, there's this evil permeating the country because of Ahab's terrible leadership and because of his choices that he's made and because of Jezebel's influence. And it's just a place that you don't want to be. Certainly not a place where God was being honored. But what about Jehoshaphat? What was he doing over here in the southern kingdom while all that's happening? Well, the Bible says that Jehoshaphat, because he followed the example of his father's early years and and did not worship the images of Baal. So first of all, here's one thing you need to know about Jehoshaphat. He is anti-Baal. He's not about worshiping Baal because he knows that that's not the worship of the true God. And actually, he understands that if you worship Baal, it pulls you away from the true God. And that kind of bears on this next passage because the Bible says that he sought his father God and obeyed his commands instead of following the evil practices of the kingdom of Israel. So the Bible's saying instead of trying to marry the worship of Baal and God together, he stayed loyal to the true God. And then there's this word so. Now, time out. When you read the Bible and you see the word so, you should underline it. Because it's such a little word, and it's really easy to skip over, right? But it's such a powerful word. Because whenever you see the word so, it means because of everything that you just read, this happened. So the Bible is saying because Jehoshaphat followed God, and he, he didn't mess around with the stuff that was happening in Israel, and he was being loyal to God, that was where all his loyalty was, the Lord established Jehoshaphat's control over the kingdom of Judah. And all the people of Judah brought gifts to him. So, I mean, he was developing some wealth, and he became wealthy and highly esteemed. And he was deeply committed. Now, this is what I want you to pay attention to. This tells you what's going on in his heart. This is who Jehoshaphat really is. This is who he truly is. He was deeply committed to the ways of the Lord. He removed the pagan shrines and Asherah poles from Judah. So he was even cutting down some of the big monuments that people had set up to worship other gods. So all of this, at this point, our picture is so simple, right? It makes perfect sense. I even had them make a little line down the stage because there's this dividing thing between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Over in the northern kingdom, it's evil. It's bad. It's Ahab. It's a mess. It's a spaghetti mess of religion, and it's all confusing and complicated. But over here in the southern kingdom, life makes sense. Jehoshaphat is is loyal to God. He's trying to follow God's commandments. He's trying to do the right thing. He's even like sort of the father of Christian education. I keep expecting the Jehoshaphat Christian Academy to open up someday because Jehoshaphat took people who were scholars at the palace and sent them out all over his kingdom to go teach people not only about, um, about life and about wisdom, but he wanted them to teach them about God. So life was very clear and very simple. And if things just continued on that way, you would pretty much predict, okay, Ahab's headed for a bad future, Jehoshaphat's headed for a good future. This is a pretty simple story. Except there's this moment when the whole thing turns on its head. I don't know if if you're like me. Sometimes when I read the Bible, everything is making sense, and then I'll get to the specific verse or the specific twist of a story or plot twist, and I'll think, oh my goodness, what just happened? That's exactly what happens here. The beginning of chapter 18, check this out. It says that Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahab of Israel by having his son marry Ahab's daughter. Does that strike you as strange as it does to me? Because you have to say, if Jehoshaphat was who the Bible says he was, if he was deeply committed to the ways of God, why on earth would he marry off one of his kids to one of Ahab's kids? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Unless you view it as a hedge, I think that's what happened. I mean, think about it. Imagine if you're Jehoshaphat. 
You've got this little kingdom in the southern, and you've got a lot of enemies. Every, back then, it was, every, during the time when, when the weather was good and, and, and armies went out to battle, everything was a turf war. Every side of your country could get attacked at some point by whoever your neighbors were because they might be trying to annex land. So this is something that you had to live with. You, this was the stress you had to live under every year was that when spring came around, you didn't know who was going to come and attack you to try to annex your property. But if you're Jehoshaphat, the number one person person you got to worry about is Ahab because he's got this big army he's got 10 of the 12 tribes after all they were one country at one point in time so if Ahab were to get it in his head that he wants to unify the country again by just going down and trying to wipe out the southern kingdom he could probably do it now this is important without the divine intervention of God they would probably be taken if Ahab decided he wanted to come after him now here's what I think I think that Jehoshaphat believed that if Ahab came for him, that God would protect him. But I think he decided to place a little hedge bet in case what he believed wouldn't be true. I think he decided it was probably good to bet on the underdog just in case Ahab came for him and just in case God didn't show up and just in case God didn't help him out in that moment of crisis, the thing to do was to place a little hedge bet. So think about this, you've got this line that divides good and evil, southern kingdom, northern kingdom, and, and everything is so simple so far, life is uncomplicated, but be, in order to make sure that he would not lose everything, what Jehoshaphat does is he, he takes his son and he scoots his son over the line and says, I want you to go marry Ahab's daughter. Over the years, doing pastoral life coaching, counseling. I've sat across from people and talked to them about their relationship with God, over their spiritual relationship with God. Where do they stand with God? And an answer that I get more than you would probably think is, well, it's complicated. You know, well, well how, how much do you feel like your life lines up with what you believe? Well, it's kind of complicated. You know what, up until this moment, up until Jehoshaphat marries his son off to Ahab's daughter, his life is simple. Maybe he has some stuff that he has to worry about, some stuff that he has to have faith in God that he's gonna be okay. But up until this moment, his life is simple. The moment he marries his son off to Ahab's daughter, his life becomes very complicated. You have to ask Jehoshaphat, look, you know what's going on over there. Why are you sending your son over there? Well, it's complicated. Take me a while to explain it to you. Remember how I said, when I was selling these, com these computer contracts, I said, my job was to get a person to invest in both their faith and to get them to invest in their doubt. We hedge because we have doubt. And I really think there's two doubts that have to do with God that we tend to hedge all the time. Here's the first one. I think we hedge the doubt that God won't be there for me like I think he will. I think that if I do the right thing, God is gonna bless me. I think that if I stay on this side of the line, God is gonna be there for me because that's what the Bible says and I have faith in that. But what if that's not true? What's, what am I gonna do just in case that doesn't happen? Or this one is the big one and I think this is the one that Satan uses to trip, trip us up the most and that is, what if I miss out on something really cool? Do you remember the story in the Garden of Eden? Satan comes to Eve. What does, he, what does he basically trick her with? Hey, God is trying to keep you out of something really cool. You're missing out because you're doing what God has asked you to do. I mean, the fact that sin is part of our world is the result of a hedge, and the hedge happened because of a doubt, and the doubt was that maybe 
by following God, we'd be missing out. I'm talking to somebody in this room, you're in a dating relationship. And you're trying to follow God's instructions for your dating relationship. You're trying to do the right thing, and yet there is a little part of you, a little nagging part in your mind that says, but what if I'm missing out on something really cool? Or I'm talking to somebody in here, you work at a workplace where corners are routinely cut and, and little, little business cheats happen frequently, but you've been the person who hasn't done that. Because for you, that's on the other side of the line. And you've tried to, tried to anticipate that by doing the right thing, you're going to have a good future. But there is that little nagging part of you in the back of your mind that says, but what if I'm missing out? And I think that's what Jehoshaphat, he was struggling with these doubts, and so he started hedging his bets. But the problem is, once you divide your loyalty, your life is always going to be complicated. I mean, think about it. You bet on the team that you expect to win, but you also bet on the underdog. Who are you rooting for? Well, it's complicated, right? A little bit of your loyalties over here, a little bit of your loyalties over there. And at that point, every, every decision that you make is complex. Every part of your life is complex, and it's stressful. So now, you know, somehow Jehoshaphat and Ahab are in-laws. You know, and, and, and kings in the ancient Orient did this all the time, right? If you didn't want to get attacked by another country, the thing to do is marry off one of your kids to one of their kids because after all, it's kind of uh, uh, unlikely that you're going to decide to annihilate your in-laws. You should not annihilate your in-laws. So just so I'm clear on that. Um, but there's, there's this thought that once there's this fam- family bond, then we don't have to worry about this. But you know what? Now that there's this family bond, he's got new problems he's got to worry about because pretty quick... Ahab calls him up and says, hey man, I want to throw on this big barbecue. Why don't you come over and hang out with us? Well, Jehoshaphat doesn't belong in the northern kingdom. He shouldn't be over there. The northern kingdom is just a place that there's a sort of permeating evil there. And he, he really doesn't need to be sitting down at a table with Ahab and, and hanging out at a friendly barbecue. But what are you going to do? At this point, his son and, his, and Ahab's daughter is married. What are you going to say? Are you going to say no? I mean, you get the invitation, you're kind of on the hook. It's complicated. So the Bible says he, he goes to Samaria and he visits Ahab, who prepared a great banquet for him and his officials. Now, this is an interesting verse. Sometimes the Bible puts details in there that you have to just look at and go, well, this must mean something. Because you would expect that there would be a lot of food, but the Bible specifically wants us to see they butcher great numbers of sheep, goats, and cattle for the feast. Why is this an important detail? Here's why I think it is. I think Jehoshaphat goes over to Ahab's, and Ahab put, puts on a party that he knows Jehoshaphat could never throw. He serves it on, on, on China that he knows Jehoshaphat's kingdom couldn't afford. He, he kills more animals than Jehoshaphat's kingdom could ever afford to kill for a barbecue. And he throws a party that leaves, Ahab, that leaves Jehoshaphat feeling as though his wealth has been dwarfed and honestly leaves him starting to feel like he kind of owes Ahab something. See, that's the problem with dividing our loyalty, Right? Dividing our loyalty means, our loyalty has to do with who do we feel that we're invested in, and in a sense, because we're invested in it, who do we owe? And once we put our loyalty in two different camps, we sort of feel like we owe somebody over here, and we owe somebody over here. So Jehoshaphat felt like his, his loyalty was due to God, but now, I mean, he's kind of got some loyalty to Ahab, so he kind of owes Ahab too. And Ahab wanted to make sure that Jehoshaphat noticed that, because here comes the hook. I mean, this was, all of this was just the bait. Here comes the hook, because Ahab says, listen, I want you to join forces with me to recover Ramoth Gilead. Again, a turf war. 
And this was not a turf war that had anything to do with Jehoshaphat. This was not a battle for the southern kingdom. This was a northern kingdom thing. But, and, and honestly, there's not a lot of, there's, there's, you know, Jehoshaphat's army, I'm not 100% sure how much of a contribution that was to the deal because we're going to find out in a second what Ahab really wanted to get out of this deal. But he's trying to make the deal. He's trying to hook him into this. Hey, come and, come and fight against Ramoth Gilead with me. After all, we're family, right? And after all, didn't I throw a nice barbecue? Everybody likes barbecue. Look, nobody throws a barbecue like I do. And there's only one way you get to come to next year's barbecue, and that's if you come help me, you know, fight against Ramoth Gilead. So, he asked him, you know, straight up, will you go with me? And Jehoshaphat replied, why, of course. After all, he kind of feels like he owes the guy. But, but check this out. He says, you and I are as one, and my troops are your troops. Here's the other problem when your loyalty is divided. Because your loyalty and your identity are absolutely tied. If you give up part of your loyalty, you have to give up part of your identity. Think about the power of this statement. Jehoshaphat says, buddy, you and me, we're together, man. We're, we're like one person, man. Well, I, my identity, your identity, whatever. Whatever it is that you want to do, I'm there. You know what he did? He put himself in Ahab's little red wagon. You know, I'm, I, had a, I had a professor in college who told me, I, 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 had, a, I had a buddy who got really, he got his no, nose out of joint over something. He was really being a, a pest and a pain, but I, he was my buddy, and so I was getting my nose out of joint at the same time, and my professor said, Jonathan, don't, don't you ever crawl into somebody else's little red wagon. You'll have to go wherever they go. And you know, this is what Jehoshaphat did. He crawled into Ahab's little red wagon. Man, I'm with you. I'm you. You know, my identity is your identity. So if Ahab was in a bad mood, he was in a bad mood. If Ahab was in a good mood, he was in a good mood. If Ahab wants to go fight these people, he's going to go fight these people. If Ahab decides he doesn't want to, he's going to decide he doesn't want to. He's basically given up who he is. And I'm talking to somebody in this room. When you're at work and when you're with the crowd that's kind of anti-God and they're sort of on this side of the line, you're kind of in their little red wagon. Wherever they're going, you're going with them. Jehoshaphat was a good person. And keep in mind, he was still deeply committed to God on the inside. But on the outside, he was riding around wherever Ahab wanted to go. Then Jehoshaphat added, but first, hey, before we go out and fight these people, let's find out what the Lord says. Now, Jehoshaphat is a chronic hedger. Right? So when he's over on this side, on God's side, on the side of, of, of good, he's hedging his bet by investing a little bit with Ahab. But somehow now he's gotten hooked and dragged over into the bad side. He's sitting next to Ahab, talking to Ahab, riding around in Ahab's little red wagon. Right, But now, because he recognizes that now he's completely invested in Ahab, what does he do? He wants to place a little bet on God. Hey, let's bring in a prophet and see what, what the prophet says. So, you know, Ahab brings in 400 prophets and asks them, should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead? Now, these prophets that he brings in, they are prophets that graduated from the Ahab seminary. These are prophets of the Ahab religion. And so all they've ever been taught is tell Ahab whatever he wants to hear. So he says, should we go fight against this country? And they all know he wants to go fight against the country. And they put on this elaborate show to tell him how successful he's going to be. Oh, yeah, you're going to win. And they even put on this little skit for him to show him how successful he's going to be. Right? He said, they say God's going to give you the victory. But then Jehoshaphat asked, wait a minute, is there not also a prophet of the Lord here? We should ask him the same question. Do you sense how much there is now this internal battle between who Jehoshaphat is on the inside and who he's being right now on the outside? Man, you want to talk about a stressful life, 
A stressful life is when who you are on the inside is in complete conflict on who you are on the outside. Right? And he's in the middle of this battle. We should, bring, we should bring somebody in who could actually speak for God and ask him the same question. So the king of Israel, so Ahab says, there's one more guy who could consult the Lord for us. There's only one prophet in Israel that really can connect with God at that time. And he says, but listen, I hate this guy, right? And I've got a, I've got a crazy imagination, so I can hear tone of voice when I'm reading the Bible. And I feel like Ahab just had a whiny tone of voice. You can see it in his words. So he's like, you know, I could bring this guy in, but I hate him, you know? This guy never prophesies anything but trouble for me, Right? Now, if you're Jehoshaphat, some, some sort of light bulb ought to be going off, right? That if the prophet of the God who on the inside you're loyal to says, this is going to go badly, you would say, I'm out. But keep in mind, his life is complicated. There's a little bit of his loyalty over here, so he owes a little bit to Ahab. He owes a little bit to God. He's in conflict. He doesn't really know what he's going to do in the middle of this. So he's just watching it play out. So the king says his name is Micaiah, son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat said, I don't really think you should say that about this guy. Let's hear what he has to say. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, quick, bring Micaiah, son of Imlah. And so this is what the prophet says. He says, in a vision, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, their master, this would refer to Ahab, their master has been killed. Send them home in peace, right? And of course, to this, Ahab says, didn't I tell you? He never prophesies anything but trouble for me. Now, spoiler alert, here's what's going to happen when they go out and have this battle with Ramoth Gilead. What's going to happen is exactly what the prophet just said. Ahab's going to die. It's not going to end well for Ahab, right? This is a really bad day for him, right? Um, and in the middle of all of this, the battle's going to be a complete loss, just as the guy said, because everybody's going to scatter once King Ahab's dead. And nothing good is going to come out of this battle, but that's not what Ahab wants to hear. Ahab really doesn't care about God anyway. That's not his thing anyhow. He he, he only asks for this kind of you know, prophetic help as a, as a ceremony, right? He, he does religion as a ceremony. Religion isn't a lifestyle for him. A connection with God, a relationship with God isn't a lifestyle for him. It is a piece of red tape that he has to make his way through. But Jehoshaphat now is still, remember, he's riding around in Ahab's little red wagon, which means that when they go into battle, they go in together. So King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah led their armies against Ramoth Gilead. Now, if you want to know why does Ahab really care all this much about getting Jehoshaphat to go into battle with him, we're getting ready to see it right now. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, as we go into battle, I will disguise myself so no one will recognize me, but you, you wear your royal robes. Does that strike anybody else as odd? So the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. So here's what happens, right? Ahab goes to Jehoshaphat and he says, buddy, man, we've bonded, man. You know, we're, we're, we're close, we're tight. And as we've been spending this time together, I felt you just haven't gotten the recognition you deserve. You know, I really feel like people need to see you as more of a leader. You need to raise your chair up six inches. You, you know, you need the, the profile. I mean, you've, you're such a great king, but you just don't have the, the marketing. You know, you, need, you just, people don't recognize your face yet. We need to get your face out in front of people. So here's what I'm going to do. You know, I could lead out in this battle, but I mean, come on. You know, people already know that I'm pretty awesome. So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to just kind of dress you know, nondescriptly, I'm going to kind of hang back. I'm, I'm just, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to steal your thunder, right? You need to lead this out. This needs to be a you moment. I mean, when people think of the battle of Ramoth Gilead, they need to think Jehoshaphat, right? So you go out in your royal robes. You know, in fact, listen, if you want to take my chariot, you go right ahead, you know? If you want to go in my closet and pick out one of my robes, you know, if they're a little nicer than yours or whatever, you know, that's how we are, man. You know, we're so close, I don't even care, Right? 
Kings did this all the time back then. Because if, if, the, if you killed the king of the opposing country, you were going to win because they were going to scatter. And Ahab, I'm, I'm going to guess Ahab always disguised himself when he went into battle. But this was great. Now he had somebody on the hook that seemed so wishy-washy and so stupid, he thought this guy would be a decoy for him. And because Jehoshaphat's riding around in Ahab's little red wagon, he's going to do it. Now, what does the Bible say about joining forces with something or someone that goes against God? So if you're for God and you're inside, the person that you are inside wants to follow God, what does the Bible say about joining forces with something or someone that goes in the opposite direction? Here's what the Bible says. It says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? Now, if, if you grew up in a church that, that, that had more traditional versions of the text, you probably remember this verse because it's the passage that talks about being unequally yoked, right? And this is a, a term that's been thrown around for a long time about marriage, that a person who's a believer and a person who's an unbeliever shouldn't get married, but the the, the principle is so much larger than that. See, the people who this was written for were an agricultural society. They understood if you take two animals that are absolutely determined to go in different directions and you put them in the same harness, it's going to be a bad day for everybody, right? At, 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 at best, they're going to cancel each other's efforts out. At worst, one animal is going to drag the other animal the whole time. And this is exactly what we need to understand about what happened with Ahab and Jehoshaphat. These guys inside were determined to go two different directions. So at best, Jehoshaphat's life, the moment that he invested across the line was going to be complicated, it was going to be stressful, and he was going to be pulling against the whole time. But the worst thing that could happen and did happen is that Ahab was more powerful than Jehoshaphat and dragged him across the line over into a future that he did not want for himself. How can light live with darkness. What, what does this mean? And what, what is the Bible trying to teach us here? Well, the Bible's trying to teach us there are some things in life that you can't have both ways. Right? I mean, there are some things we can hedge. Rental car contracts, extended warranties on, you know, dining room chairs. They sell extended warranties on everything now, right? There's some stuff that you can hedge successfully. But there are some things in life that you can't hedge. There are some things in life that you can't have both ways. For instance, I cannot come into this room and call up to Daniel in the tech booth and say, Daniel, I want you to turn on all the intelligent lights and all the washes to 100% power, and also please keep it very dark in here. What's he going to say back to me? He's going to say, I what? I can't. I can't make it light and dark at the same time. Or if I were to go today over to the water park that's not too far from my home, and I was to show up like this and say, hey, I want to ride every water slide here at the water park, but as you can tell, I didn't have time to go put on my swim trunk, so I don't want to get wet at all, right? They're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to say, you can't, you can't, you know, get wet and be dry at the exact same time. Can't drive east and west at the same time. There's an old proverb that says, a man who walks in two directions will split his pants, And good and evil are even more opposite than any of the things that I just talked about. Good and evil are the, are the polar opposites of the universe in which we live. And God's saying you can't go in the direction of good and the direction of evil at the same time. It doesn't work that way. There's costs in trying to hedge good and evil. For Jehoshaphat, the first cost was he introduced his family to the other side. Did you know that after Jehoshaphat died and his son took over, his son was one of the worst kings that Judah ever had. You know why? Because he married Ahab's daughter. 
and that influence seeped over into his life, and then when he became king, he brought that influence into how he ruled the people. He undid every good thing that his dad did. He introduced his family to the other side. But let me ask you this question. What about the things that we introduce our kids to in our homes? The movie you take your kids to, is it on this side of the line or is it on that side of the line? Sometimes if we had to sit down and really look at it, we'd have to say, well, I guess that movie is mostly on that side of the line. But we've introduced our family to it. What about that way of interacting, of, of being mean or, 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 or being argumentative or, or causing difficulty or strife within the home? Is that on this side of the line or is it on that side of the line? Well, it's kind of mostly on that side of the line, but we've introduced our family to it. Some of our family has no idea where we really stand on the inside. There's some people in this room that your kids don't know about the fact that deep inside you are deeply committed to God because they keep seeing a mixed bag of stuff on this side of the line and that side of the line in the home and they're not really sure where things are. Second cost was gave away his identity. Started being pulled around his little red wagon. Some of us we don't have near the power in our lives that we could have because instead of walking in the direction that we know we should go, we're riding in directions that we shouldn't go. And then finally, he almost lost his life. I and mean, if you want to see the rest of the story, it goes like this. When the Aramean chariot commander saw Jehoshaphat, I mean, he's in Ahab's chariot wearing Ahab's robes. They go after him. Of course, it looks like he's Ahab. They said, there is the king of Israel. But Jehoshaphat called out and the Lord saved him. God helped him by turning the attackers away from him. As soon as the chariot commanders realized he wasn't the king of Israel, they stopped chasing him, which is almost embarrassing when you realize that meant that he wasn't important enough to chase once they realized who he really was, right? I say that because it's possible in this room. I've talked a lot about what's on this side of the line and what's on that side of the line. It's sort of a self-examination kind of thing. We have to start asking ourselves about the influences in our life. Am, 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 I, am I going in the right direction or am I riding around in somebody else's little red wagon? Am I introducing things to my family that I shouldn't? And it's something you could walk away and feel like, man, I've really made a lot of mistakes in this area and I really I haven't done what I should do. But you should know, no matter how much you feel that way, you can't be as bad off as Jehoshaphat was. The guy was getting ready to die. But look at what God did. God turned it around for him, just like God can turn it around for you when he did one thing, what the Bible says he called out. And it's interesting, there's two different passages that tell this story. And Bible scholars tell us that when you, when you take the two passages and you sort of overlap them and look at what it says, it leads us to believe that he both called out to God and he called out to the, pe the people that were chasing him. He called out to God and said, save me. He called out to the people that were chasing him. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not who I look like. There's some of us that need to say that. There's some of us that need to make it public. You know who I am deep inside? I'm deeply committed to God. I'm not who you think I am. I'm not who I look like. There's somebody deep down inside of here that is ready to quit looking like and acting like and talking like everybody else and is ready to pick which side of the line that I'm on. Remember how I said that Ahab was mixing the religion of God and Baal, right? God sent a prophet to them when this was all happening. And this is something that he said to them. The prophet of God says, how long will you waver between two opinions? That word waver means to limp between, which I understand because I had knee surgery a couple years ago. There was a period of time where all I did was waver between the recliner and the bedroom, right? I would limp between back and forth. You know what Elijah was saying? He was saying, you're not getting anywhere in life because all you're doing is you're limping between 
good and bad. And he said, you know what's sad is you think you're straddling good and bad so that you can have it both ways. You think that somehow you're loyal to Baal and you're loyal to God and you can do this at the same time and no matter what happens, you're okay on both sides. And he said, that's not what happening. what's happening. He says, you're going between. He said, you're doing this little dance between good and bad. You know, over here, you know, you're, you're doing this when you're hanging out with your buddies at work and they're kind of anti-God. You're over on this side, but then it comes time for church and you hop over to this side. You're on the good side for a little while and then, you know, you, you, you have a conversation with your kids about how it's so important to honor God then you put the kids to bed and you put on this you know, R-rated movie that has a lot of stuff in it that's very anti-God, but you're over on this side and you keep dancing back and forth. And he said, look, if the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, follow him. Now, why is he making that point? Well, very importantly, because he wants you to know that God wants to bless you, but if, if God can bless you, you're gonna have to decide where you stand. The Bible says that we need to be sure that our faith is in God alone. Don't limp back and forth between two options because a person with divided loyalty, first of all, is unsettled, stressed out, frustrated, having a difficult life. Their life is complicated. And the Bible says that such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So what the Bible is saying is, look, God wants to bless you. You can stay on God's side and be under the umbrella of God's blessing. But if this is what you're doing and you're limping and hobbling between the two and doing this little dance between good and bad, you've presented too much of a moving target for God. He can't bless you because you're back and forth so much. At some point, you're going to have to decide where your loyalty is. The Bible says when we do that, our loyalty is divided between God and the world. And when that happens, we become what? We become unstable. So, I told you there was a moral of the story, right? Come down to the, to the moral, and, and Jehoshaphat's gonna do it for us. Because remember I said Jehoshaphat was an educator. He would send people out throughout his kingdom and he would teach them stuff. So we have record of that. And here, after Jehoshaphat goes through this terrible battle, he sends this lesson out to everybody in the kingdom. This is what it is. He said, tell the people that they need to act in the fear of the Lord with faithfulness, and check this out, with an undivided heart. He said, you need to figure out where your loyalty is and don't divide it because once you divide your loyalty, your life is gonna be way complicated and you're gonna bargain for a future that you don't want. Here is really what he was saying. He was saying that at some point you have to pick a side. You have to decide where you're gonna stand. I'm gonna tell this really quick story and then we're gonna be done. When I was growing up at, at uh, New Spring, and back then it, uh, we were over at the corner of Hillside and Mount Vernon on the south side of town. It was a smaller church. Um, but we had a, a, a military man uh, join the church. He was uh, the commander, the new commander at McConnell Air Force Base. And uh, just one of the coolest guys you'd ever meet. Um, I loved him, loved his family. But as is the case with military, you know, you're here for a little while, and then, you know, a few years later, they move you somewhere, and after he'd been here for a few years, he went back to the Pentagon, and my dad was speaking in, in the Virginia area. We met up with him and his family to have uh, dinner and, and just to hang out and catch up, and he told the story at, at dinner. I thought it was really interesting. He said, you know, when I was a young captain at another Air Force base, another part of the country, he said, uh, I got a reputation for being somebody who would get things done, and, and people knew they could delegate stuff to me and I could handle it. And he said, so the, the, the colonel calls me in and says, look, I want to throw a party at my house for some of the officers. I want to throw a suds and spuds party. I heard that you're a guy who can get stuff done. I want to delegate that to you. You just handle it. And he said, well, well colonel, I'm okay with the spuds part, but I'm not, I'm not really okay with the suds part. And, and, you know, Christians have different views about alcohol usage, that's for sure. But in his mind, a Christian doesn't drink to excess. And he felt like if he threw this party, this was going to be a party where people were drinking to excess. And he just didn't want to be the person who was coordinating all of that. And so he kind of explained that to the colonel. And the colonel did a double take. And, and he looked at him and he said, are you sure that's the answer you want to give me? And he said, yes, sir, I'm, I'm sure. And he said, well, you know, you have a right to do whatever you want to. But this is going to follow you. 
I mean, this is kind of a big deal. I'm asking you to do something. You're saying no. I mean, you know, this is going to come back to bite you. So my friend went home that night and told his wife, he said, my career in the Air Force is over. But a couple weeks later, a transport plane took off from that base and crashed, and 17 airmen were killed. And he said, for a couple of days, people just walked around on that base like they were zombies. Everybody was in a daze. Everybody was, was just in shock, and nobody was making eye contact with each other. And he said it was just an eerie thing. And he said, the colonel asked to see me. And he said, I went in, and, I, and the colonel said to me, you know, this has hit us really hard, what's happened. And he said, I, I, I just have this feeling that we need to have a kind of a memorial service, like a, like, like a worshipful kind of service, and I, I don't know anything about how to do that, but I remember what you told me about what you believe and all that, and I was wondering, would you coordinate this memorial service? And he said, you won't believe this. He said, I, he said, I have never been known as the guy who refused to throw the spuds and suds party. I've always, if anything, been known as the guy who put together this memorial service. And he said, God has always opened doors for me whenever I was being loyal to him. And we were sitting across at that point at a table from a guy with two stars. At the time, he was two-star general, which is not too shabby. God had really looked out for him, but it was because he picked a side. Listen, when, when his colonel told him he needed to throw this party, that was the perfect time for him to hedge a little bit. You know, maybe, maybe it was on the other side of the line for him, but after all, this could, be, this could mean losing everything. This is a time to write a little check, hedge a little bit on the other side. But he'd picked a side. God has a special eye for people that are willing to determine that they're on his side, they're loyal to him, and they're going to follow him. That should be you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about Jehoshaphat and what his lesson can mean to us. We pray that you will give us the wisdom and the passion to follow you every day of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today.